It's great to see you. It's great to welcome you to Providence Church. We're glad that you're here. My name is Jacob Armstrong. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, it's just been a beautiful morning, isn't it? How many saw the sunrise? Anybody? Yeah, eight o'clockers did. I'm proud of you guys. Um, it's just a beautiful day to be here. If you're here for the first time, a very, very special welcome. I want to welcome in our online uh, worshipers today. Um, in fact, I have a very special guest, a great friend of mine, Daryl Crouch. Uh, Daryl's the executive director of Everyone's Wilson, and you've heard us talk about that for years and years. Uh, they have been uh, the inspiration for us in many ways. Right now in our student room, there's all kinds of food being put together for people in our community, and that's a part of a joint vision with Everyone's Wilson. So, Daryl, we just welcome you here today. Would y'all welcome Daryl and just give thanks for his ministry? <laughs> um, I had an old friend recently ask me, a guy who doesn't go to church, he, he, maybe he'd never gone to church as far as I could tell, and uh, he asked me, he said, uh, Jacob, do you, do you believe in evil? And, uh, and so I kind of, I thought about it and I said, well, do you believe in evil? That was my response. Sometimes pastors do that when we don't really know what somebody's up to, <laughs> what they're getting at, you know? And uh, he thought about it and he said, he said, yeah, I do. And I said, well, why do, you, why do you believe in evil? So I've got him now, like I'm leading the conversation, you know? And he said, I've just seen so much evidence of it in my, in my life. This is one of my old fishing buddies. And I found that people who don't believe in God, a lot of them still believe in evil or see, or see the evidence of evil. In fact, uh, some people who don't believe in God don't believe in God because of evil. And it's hard for, the, uh, hard for us to reconcile how certain things could happen in the world or in our, in, our very own, in our very own lives. I used to say, some of you guys who've been with me a long time, um, the first several years of my ministry, I would say, I don't really talk about the devil. Anybody remember? I would say, I don't want to give the devil airtime. You know, that was my thought. I don't really want to talk about it. don't really want to focus on, on the devil. But I've learned something in my old age, uh, and that is... Um, just because you don't talk about something doesn't mean it's not real. And I've learned that actually talking about it makes it less powerful. So that's what I'm talking about today, not to stir anything up. Um, well, the reason we're talking about it is we're studying the book of Luke and, and Jesus is talking to evil and talking about evil. But I just wanted to bring up, like, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to, you know, get us in a frenzy. You can talk about it too much, I think. But... I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to see some things from the scripture today. And the first is this. Usually evil shows up in the quiet place, in the dark place, um, in your mind, just you and evil. We think evil is out there in the world, but oftentimes the place we encounter it is going to be in the private place. And how you deal with it, that's what we're talking about for these three weeks, how you deal with evil. How you deal with evil in the private moment will impact how you live your life in the public. And what I want for you today is clarity and confidence for your life. That's why we're talking about it. I want you in your calling, and I believe everybody here has a reason that they're alive and a reason God uh, has them here. And, and I want you to have clarity, to have a clear focus for that and confidence in the way that you live that out. And evil will try to confuse you and tell you lies so you won't be clear about what's going on and you won't be confident about how you live your life. And that clarity and confidence will be learned, gained, steeled in you in the private moments. 
what you're thinking about, what you're looking at on your phone, what you're putting in your mind, what deals you're making in your quiet moments. That's what impacts your public life. We looked at Jesus last week in the wilderness in a private moment, just him and the devil. And Jesus said, no deal to evil. There was all these deals being laid before him. He said, no deal. And that private moment leads Jesus immediately, at least in the scripture, to a public moment. It's just him and the devil in the wilderness. And then now he's standing in his first kind of public moment. So that's where we pick up this morning. Luke chapter four, verse 14. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. You're gonna be so excited because I'm bringing back this morning the map. All right. And you'll see here, I've got circled Jerusalem. And the reason Jerusalem is circled here is because in the wilderness, Jesus was just uh, there in the wilderness, kind of between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. But at least the last thing that happens in the wilderness story for Jesus in the spirit or in the physical is Jesus is standing on the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And then this verse, we just read that he goes back up to Galilee. So next verse says, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So we look at the map again and I want you to see circled Nazareth. So just want you to see the differences there. We've seen in the book of Luke, Jesus is moving back and forth from this area called Galilee up around the sea there, Nazareth, his hometown, and then back to Jerusalem, back and forth. And I think that the movements have purpose and an understanding of where Jesus is at in the moments, I think will impact us as we study this book over the course of time. That's why I'm showing you that. So he's in Nazareth and it says the scroll of the prophet, he's in the synagogue in Nazareth and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So everything we hear Jesus say now is simply Jesus reading the Bible in his time. So we're reading the Bible. <laughs> But this is Jesus reading the Bible in his church. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the end of the scripture reading. And it says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then Jesus said, he, he began to say to them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It says the people in the synagogue, their eyes were fixed on him. And the reason that their eyes were fixed on him, they were mesmerized by him, is because of the way he was reading Isaiah. So after he was done, he said, today the scripture is fulfilled. And everybody knew what he was saying. He was saying, I am fulfilling the scriptures. It seems that when Jesus read the spirit of the Lord is on me, he said it like the spirit of the Lord is on me. It seems like that when Jesus said he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he actually had some emphasis and said he has, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me. Jesus was reading the scriptures and saying that the verses about salvation and rescue that they were hoping would come were coming through him. And in case they missed it, they, he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The next verse says, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? <laughs> he was in his hometown. Is this not Joseph's son? 
Kind of what they were saying with that is, this is a lot for us to take in. I was trying to think of what this would be like, and I think it would be like one of our students, you know, who grew up in the church here at Providence, and they go off to college, and maybe they come back for college visit, or they come back, they're earlier in their career, and we decide to have them read scripture that day. We've done that with young people. And instead of saying, after the scripture reading, instead of them saying, this is the word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God, they said, this is the word of God for the people of God because I am God. That would upset some of y'all, right? We'd say, isn't that Chris Kiro's son that just said that, right? They don't yet know who he is. And so they're, they're captivated by him, but they're also a little bit bothered by him. So Jesus says after that, he knows, he, you know, he knows what they're saying. He says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This might be like some kid growing up in Mount Juliet, you know, and then coming back and thinking he could be a preacher there and people would listen to him, you know. I'm just being silly. It's actually nothing like that. Um, but Jesus tells them when they say, when he says a prophet, you know, you can't be a prophet in your own hometown. Jesus says, well, actually this kind of, this kind of thing has happened all throughout the story of faith. He says all throughout our scriptures, we see people who are actually in the midst of a move of God and they don't recognize God. And he gives them examples from their story where God, stuff they would have remembered when God was on the move. And he says, and the people in the story didn't know that God was on the move. Can you imagine that God could be on the move, but the people of God don't recognize God in the moment? And when Jesus said that, it says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. The version you're looking at might say, and they were all furious. I want you to look at this for a second. It, it says, you know, some of them were like mesmerized by him, looking at him, isn't this Joseph's son? But all of them were mad at him when he insinuated that he was bringing God's word and they were not gonna listen to it. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill of which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. This is serious. Something I would want you to notice that happens almost every time is that spiritual opposition like Jesus was facing in the wilderness will very soon lead to physical opposition. The things that happen in private will be lived out in the public. And so the spiritual opposition that you will face, do not be surprised if you then face something very real that is a conflict in you. If you're, if you're you know, assuaged in the night by spiritual, uh, by spiritual evil, don't be surprised if the next morning you find yourself in a traffic jam. Don't be surprised if the spiritual stuff that's coming against you makes your body hurt. The spiritual impacts the physical. And just because we don't see the spiritual, we don't talk about it as much, but I, I really feel that it is just as real, the things that are going on there, as the things in the physical. Jesus is at the edge of the cliff and it says, but passing through their midst, he went away. He just pulls a Jesus move, right? And they're trying to throw him off a cliff and he just walks through them. Nazareth is situated on the edge of a precipice. And there's actually a traditional uh, site of it. I've been there. Uh, and I was thinking, I've heard, always heard like if you pay for your pastor to go to Israel, you will pay for it for the rest of your life. And that's, this is one of those moments. I've been there. And um, 
Somebody took a picture of me and this guy named Tyler. We were standing at the traditional site of the precipice in Nazareth. I just wanted you to see it because we're talking about spiritual things, but the story is situated in a very real physical place. It's pretty crazy. We are told that the devil tempts Jesus, his last temptation, on a precipice. In the spirit, Jesus is on a precipice and the devil's saying, throw yourself out of here. And then the very next story in the physical, Jesus is standing on a precipice and people are trying to throw him off. And he can remember the temptations of the devil. He says, even if you go off, won't the angels come and lift you up? How is Jesus going to act when everyone's watching? How is Jesus going to behave? And the answer is the same way he behaved in private. He will act out in public what he encountered in the private and you will too. So here's what Jesus brought with him to his public moment, clarity and confidence. Because Jesus knew in the wilderness who he was, because Jesus knew in temptation what was important, when he got to the synagogue, he was clear about what he should say and clear about how he should act. The devil tempted him. I just want to remind you of the temptations. The, the devil tempted him in the wilderness that his belly could be full when it was empty. The de devil said, you could have all the power of all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said, you know, you can make God do what you want. Throw yourself off the cliff. Jesus said no deal to all those things, answering with the word of God. And when he got in public, he then had clarity about what God called him to do. Listen to what he says in the synagogue. He doesn't say, I'm here to fill my belly up. He says, I will be the one who fills hungry bellies up. He does not say that his purpose is to get all the authority of the government and kingdoms. He says his purpose actually is for the ones who are oppressed by the governments and the kingdoms. He's not playing games with God like the devil tempted him. He's proclaiming God. So Jesus knows what to say and how to act because he fasted and spent time with the Lord and encountered evil and knew how to, how to deal with it. I'm talking about all this stuff today because I know that some of you are being tested right now. I know that some of you are in a 40-day period, a long time kind of deal. I don't know all that it is, but some of you know right now you're in the middle of it. And it is here where you are right now that you're going to get the clarity and the confidence to face what is coming next. You're going to learn how you're supposed to live in this moment. This moment has purpose. This is one of those great scriptures where Jesus comes off as like a bad dude. And what I mean by that is not a bad person, just sort of like, just kind of a guy you don't really, you probably shouldn't mess with. A lot of times Jesus, most of the time, Jesus is gentle, kind, all these kind of things. But in this story, he's resilient, he's focused, he's confident, he's facing criticism, he's oppressed, he's facing opposition, and he stands strong in the face of it to say, this is who I am and this is what I'm about. When confidence is gained in the wilderness, um, it is very real and very powerful. You will be able to tell the difference between someone who gained their confidence by being tested by evil and staying strong and somebody who's just putting on a show. Um, when when uh, confidence uh, comes out from ego or insecurity, it comes off arrogant and everybody can see it, okay? 
But when it's gained in the testing, what you're going through right now, you'll have a true confidence and a true strength. Why was Jesus confident in public? Because he won the battle in the private. Jesus is not backing down. He's faced the devil. He's not scared of some religious dudes in his synagogue, right? He's not scared of his hometown. And so if you're in it right now, the things that are being formed in you, and they really are, there's things being formed in you right now, unseen ways, what is happening in the spirit will impact your public life. And what I mean by that is how you parent your kids and how you teach and how you lead and how you work. Those things will come out of, they are a product of your inner life. Your inner life with God and how you deal with evil. All throughout Luke, there, all throughout the book, there is this, um, there, uh, there's this thing happening where the religious people, the guys like Mark, you know, are, are all trying, they're all out to get Jesus, okay? The guys like me and Mark, the guys who work in the church. And all throughout Luke, you'll see that. It could have been one of our signposts, but um, it, it's maybe not as prevalent, but all throughout it, people are trying to get Jesus. And it starts right here when they try to kill him in Nazareth, his hometown, day one of his ministry, his first day as a rabbi. They're like, we're gonna kill you. It's funny, I wrote this sermon, uh, started thinking about it right after having Providence 101, which is our newcomers class, we had it last Sunday. And in, it, in every, Providence 101, and y'all have heard me say this every time I talk about how, we, how Providence Church started, I talk about my first day in ministry here, uh, January 2nd, 2008. I always say that, January 2nd, 2008. That was my first day on the job here in Mount Juliet. Guess what? No one tried to kill me that day. No one was threatened by me. No one cared that it was happening. It was fine. It was fine. I spent the day at Panera and his uh, bread is good. But Jesus is so filled with the Holy Spirit on his first day, it's annoying evil so much that he's rousing up the religious people to try to take him out. We would think that would never happen, right? That evil would be in the religious institution using those who seem faithful to actually work against God's purposes? Well, let me fast forward just a little bit in the book of Luke to Luke chapter 22. It says in Luke 22 that the chief priest and the scribes were seeking to put him to death. So at the very end of our story, those same people are still trying to kill Jesus. But it says, for they feared the people. That's sort of a way of saying they didn't really know how to pull it off because all the people like Jesus, they were mesmerized by him. Uh, and and just, like, uh, just like Luke 4, the religious people are trying to kill Jesus. And most of you know that they succeed, right? That they do indeed get Jesus killed. And the way that that is accomplished is that Satan enters Judas, who was of the number of the 12. Evil gets into the disciples. That's trouble. This is not some random religious person in Nazareth. This is one of Jesus' brothers, one of Jesus' faithful companions. So here's what happens. The chief priests are still plotting. They're sitting around. How can we kill this off? How can we pull this off? How can we kill Jesus? The people like him. It's a dangerous thing. So they're, they're sort of like trying to think of a sneaky way that they could get Jesus killed. Meanwhile, evil is tapping Judas on the shoulder 
and, and not just getting his attention, but getting his heart. And Judas walks into where they're meeting and saying, hey, I'd like to give you guys Jesus. So while evil has been working on the religious people, evil gets one of Jesus' disciples' attention and this plot comes together. I've been watching movies with my daughter, Phoebe. Uh, she wants to be a filmmaker. And so I said I wanted to you know, show her some of the great films that were formative for me uh, growing up. So we've been, and she didn't believe me at first, but then I showed her like, uh, the Green Mile, and she's like, oh, okay, Dad, I get it, you know, and we've watched all these movies I loved growing up, Shawshank Redemption, we watched uh, Usual Suspects, uh, did y'all think I was going to say Lion King, <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> or, but anyway, so just this week, we watched uh, uh, Ocean's Eleven, right, you remember that one, Ocean's, we watched Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Twelve, and Ocean's Thirteen, they get worse as you go along, but I don't know if you remember Ocean's Eleven, it's a remake of the Rat Pack movie, Ocean's Eleven, this great heist movie, and it has Brad Pitt, and Matt Damon, and Bernie Mac, and George Clooney, I mean, the best folks. George Clooney's looking great with the gray hair at this time in his life. He's in his young 40s, it looks amazing. And there are moments, there are moments in any great heist film where people are sitting around and they're like, how are we gonna pull this off? And it seems like there's no way that they're gonna be able to pull it off. This is what happens in Oceans 11 and 12 and 13. And they're sitting around and something just happens out of nowhere where one guy walks in, the one guy they needed is gonna be on their side or somebody gets this crazy idea, the only way that it can happen. And that's what happened with Judas. They're sitting around, how are we gonna pull this off? And out of nowhere, one of the disciples walks in and says, I would like to hand Jesus over to you. How, what happened to Judas? He took the bait of the lies of Satan. Here's what the lies were, something good for him, something that would give him power and something that he would use his connection with God for his own gain. Those are the same three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness to which Jesus said, no deal. Judas says, let's make a deal. And here's the best part about all this. You're thinking there's a best part about this. Oh yeah, there is a best part. Listen to this. Satan using his best tricks still leads to the glory of Jesus. It's played out right on the pages of Luke. This is a deep spiritual truth that I'm just kind of learning, so I wanna unpack it with you. God is using the devil's own schemes to shame the devil. It's crazy. The devil tries to trick Jesus in the wilderness. It leads to Jesus being strong for his ministry. The spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And while the devil thought, I'll play Jesus, God is using the devil as a pawn in his salvation plan. The devil thinks in this moment in Luke 22, I've got the biggest conquest. I have entered a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12. I got him. I tricked him to turn over Jesus to the other guys that I've been tricking the whole time. And the devil's use of Judas leads Jesus to the cross. The devil thinks, I got him, as the nails go in his hands. And on the cross, evil is crushed. The devil's trick in the garden is overturned by his own trick of Judas in the garden of Gethsemane. He thought he'd won. Well, guess what? He lost. He's a fool and is exposed by it, by his own trick. Okay, 
what does that mean for your life? You know, I'm like, okay, it's kind of cool to hear the cosmic ramifications of God kicking the devil's butt, right? But does this mean anything for me? It means everything. Paul tries to tell us about it. I know this is a lot, but just, I, this is something God's been teaching me. I want to share it with you. Paul tries to tell us in 2 Corinthians what all of this means. You're not going to believe it. Paul, the greatest leader of the early church, Paul, who's received these wonderful revelations from God, says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. And you know how he describes the thorn in his flesh? A messenger from Satan. This great man of God is saying, the devil is tormenting me, tormenting me to keep me from becoming proud. Well, the devil is not interested in Paul not becoming proud. Only one person would be interested in that, God. And so the messenger of Satan is there and God knows it. Paul says three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. Can anybody relate to something in your life where you're like, take it away, take it away, take it away. Three times, just like the three temptations, get out of here. But guess what? The thorn is not taken away. Something else is given, and what is given is enough grace. (laughs) Paul says, this is what Jesus said to me every time I said take it away. He said, my grace is all you need. My grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. And then this is crazy. He says, Jesus says, my power actually works best when you're weak. On the cross, the thorns, listen, on the cross, the thorns are not taken away. But what happens is enough grace is given. And Jesus says, my power actually works best in weak people. And Paul says, so I've been given this thorn and I wanted it to go away, but instead I'm going to do something different. He says, so instead I'm going to boast about the thorn. (laughs) I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. And, And Paul says that Christ's power is magnified in weakness. The purpose of the thorn in Paul's life was to keep him weak so the power could be strongest. And it's how it's going to work in your life. You are, I hate to say this, you are going to have pain. Powers of evil are going to come against you, follower of Jesus. I guarantee it. Here's another guarantee. God's grace will be enough. (laughs) In fact, the weaker you get, the more his power is going to be seen in you. God's grace will be enough for you. Some of us, all of us, want a different deal. And there will be different deals offered. What other deals do we want? We want the no pain in our life deal, right? That's what I want. Sometimes we want the deal where our power's enough for all the stuff we're doing. I would take that deal. I just wish my power was enough some days. But my dear ones, those deals are lies. The pain-free life is a lie. The life where your power and your smarts and your ingenuity and your toughness are enough, it's a lie. 
The truth is, the life with Jesus' grace given on the cross is the life that is enough. That's the life where the power is. There is evil, there is hardship, there is pain, but the follower of Jesus knows that the word of God silences the enemy. The the enemy will keep working his schemes, okay? But even his schemes will be used by God for Christ's glory. And it is producing in us the clarity and the confidence to preach good news. Amen.